Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. But tonight, we're officially starting with the very first part of our new series, The Greatest Story Ever. One story, one hero. We started it on Good Friday, um, but tonight is like the first installment of it, so we juggled it around a little bit. And I want to find out in the room, and maybe you can put your hands up and let me know how you feel, who loves a good story? Whether it's a novel or a TV series or a movie or a podcast these days, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, yeah, we love good stories, don't we? And, and we're in good company tonight. Um, maybe you can go to the next slide. Um, this is a picture of the... Top, te- top five trending shows on Netflix South Africa. I apologize for the quality of the picture. I just took it off my TV. Um, so this is Friday. Okay, It could have changed by today. Um, but what that is telling us is that the reason those five shows are, the top, are in the top five is because people love a good story. We're the ones making those shows, number five. I will point out that Bridgerton is number four. We're not going to say anything more about that. Um, I will say this, though, that it did absolutely, completely revitalize um, Miley Cyrus' Wrecking Ball for me because the, the, uh, the, the soundtrack is just really great. Lyrico, if you haven't, go listen for that. But don't judge me. Don't judge me on, on anything else. Um, he, I know he did. Uh, <laughs> But the bottom line is we really love a good story. And if we look at the absolute frenzy that surrounds the Marvel and DC Comics franchises, there's something else we like in a story, and that is a good hero. In fact, what we really like is somebody who looks like they're not a hero, who becomes a hero. We love that. Kind of gives us hope, doesn't it? So, I mean, I I read some of those original comics in the 80s when they were first coming out. I mean, that's how old I am. And I remember, like, reading Spider-Man. And it never really impressed me because he was a bit of a nerd. He was sort of the weirdest of of the heroes and quirky and strange. And I remember watching, I think, the original big first big movie that was made in 2002 with Tobey Maguire, who's a bit of a nerd in Hollywood, so I thought it was a really good fit. Um, And of course, Peter Parker is really nothing to look at, nothing to be impressed by, just trying to live his sad little life. And then a significant thing happens. He gets bitten by a radioactive spider. And he gets some powers. Some really not spectacular powers, if you think about Superman and whatnot. But there we go, and a hero is born. And of course, there's some angst in the story because as he's trying to make some money for his family out of his newfound powers, he disregards Uncle Ben's very good advice. With great power comes great responsibility. And because directly because of what he did in wangling money for a fight, Uncle Ben gets killed. And this is always what makes a story good, is that the, the hero is a little broken and the hero has got some angst in him. That's what makes for a good story. And we repeatedly now cannot get enough of Spider-Man. I feel like I've watched Uncle Ben die a hundred times, but maybe we will stop telling the story one day. And so the greatest story is the name of the series. And the the sub-line is one story and one hero. And last weekend, 
we celebrated most probably the most significant part of the story we're involved in. And we, we celebrated our hero when we remembered the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Pastor Loreco told us that story, and he took us in that story all the way up to Resurrection Day. Last Sunday, he, he spoke to us, and he told us the story of the woman going to the tomb on the first day, on Sunday of the week, after Jesus' has, Jesus body had been laid there. And they, they took with them all the embalming implements and embalming herbs and spices that was common in Israel because they fully expected to find his body in that tomb. And they wanted to bury him the way his people needed to be buried. But when they got there, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. And they went back and told the disciples. And the disciples, being men, didn't believe the woman. We apologize. And two of them run, and there's a bit of a competition between, um, between John and Peter. <laughs> Peter's winning, and then when they get to the tomb, John is the only one who's brave enough to go in. Oh, dear Peter. And what do they see? There's nobody. And so we're picking up the story from that moment, because that very day, in that group of early disciples, when the woman came to say, the tomb is empty, we cannot find his body, there's a man called Cleopas and his friend that the Bible doesn't name. And they've been in Jerusalem for the Passover, and now they've heard this amazing news. They've seen everything that's happened. They've heard this news, but now they have to go home. And, we're, and this is the next scene of that story, because they're busy walking home from Jerusalem to their town called Emmaus. And as they're walking, suddenly there's a third man with them. And it's so interesting because the Bible says that they are downcast. That is biblical language for depressed as heck. Why are they depressed as heck? Because they're trying to make sense of what has just happened. They've seen the miracles of Jesus. They've heard the profound preachings of Jesus. They've seen this incredible man who is fully and completely submitted to God, who carries something of heaven in himself. They've heard the promises, and they have dared to believe, whether they've said it to him, whether they've only said it to their own hearts, that they have dared to believe that this might be the promised one. This is the one who's going to redeem Israel. Because remember what was happening in Israel that day. They were besieged by Rome. They were conquered by Rome. They were not free people. A foreign pagan power was ruling them and extorting them and abusing them and doing whatever they wished with them. And who knows they wanted to be free? Who knows they wanted that to change? And then what happens? This amazing man is dragged before the Sanhedrin and the pagan court. And all, all of that was illegal. It was illegal to have a court case at night. Where does Jesus' court case start? The middle of the night. The point is, he gets crucified and he dies. Can you understand why they're depressed? And they're having such an intense discussion that when Jesus jo joins them, they don't recognize him. Well, the scripture actually tells us that it was kept from them who he was. And he asked them what to them sounds like a stupid question, and that's where we're picking up. We're going to read from Luke chapter 24, starting in the middle of verse 19. So Jesus asked them a stupid question. He says, what are you discussing? 
And they say, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And I've lost my place. (laughs) Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And the story goes on, and there's this beautiful moment where when they get to Emmaus, Jesus acts, it says in the scriptures. He pretends like he's going to go on, and they say, no, keep talking to us. And he ends up having dinner with them. He wants to have dinner with Jesus. Yeah. And when he breaks the bread, because who else do you ask to say grace when you're having dinner with Jesus? But, you know, Jesus, the most blessed food you will ever eat. And it says, as he broke the bread and gave thanks, suddenly their eyes were opened, and they saw him as the risen Savior. They saw him as the one hero of the greatest story, and he disappears, and they rejoice. All the depression All the fear, all that faith that just went away, now they've seen him. But Jesus rebukes them. When, again, biblical language, Jesus said you should not call your brother fool. In fact, it's a commandment, it's a sin. But he says to them, how foolish are you? Have you read the scriptures? How do you not understand that Messiah was to suffer before he could enter his glory? And then I love that phrase, and it says that from Moses to the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures that spoke about him, Jesus. So why does he say from Moses to the prophets? Well, that's literally the whole Old Testament, their scriptures. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He is the author of all five. It's known as the Pentateuch. And in in Judaism today, it is the law. It is the foundation of theology for Judaism. In fact, it's the foundation of theology for Christianity. So Moses wrote the first part of the books. Then if you look in your Bible, you'll see history, you'll see poetry, and then we get to the prophets. Starting with Isaiah, ending with Malachi. And so when Jesus says from Moses to the prophets, what he's saying is from beginning to end of the scripture you currently have, every single book talks about me. Every chapter, every page, every line, possibly every word. And he says to them, I am everywhere in this book. So literally from the first to the last, talks about Jesus. So let's take an example from Moses. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Who is he talking about? It's not a difficult answer. (laughs) He's talking about Jesus. 
And this is what made it difficult for, he, for the people to recognize Jesus because he came from among them. He was literally their Jewish brother, fully and completely Jewish. The record, Jesus was not Caucasian with long blonde hair and big blue eyes. <laughs> he was Middle Eastern. If you've ever, ever dissed Eastern religions, well, you've dissed yourself because Christianity is an Eastern religion. Founded by a very, very brown man with very dark hair and very dark eyes. He was fully and completely Jewish. There are people in this world who don't believe that. Jesus would say to them, how foolish are you? Have you not read the scriptures? And so Jesus came from among them. He was literally their own brother. And Moses prophesied that. How could he know that? So right from the beginning, then let's look at two of the prophets. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11 says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah is the first book of the prophets. What I love about that scripture and the reason I use it is because it, when I read that, it, it describes such a deep aspect of the ministry of Jesus on this earth. How many stories can you think of where he acted like a shepherd, where he carried the weakest of the weak, the woman with the issue of blood, the woman caught in adultery, the Roman soldier whose, whose son had died, daughter had died rather. That was his ministry. And guess what? That's his ministry to us today. How could somebody 800 years before Jesus describe that? And then from the book of Malachi, the very last book of the prophet says, Behold, it's, it's Malachi 3 verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger at the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And that's a twofold prophecy. It, it talks about the messenger who is who? John the Baptist. And then it talks about the Lord you have been waiting for. He shall come to his temple. That wasn't the physical temple of Herod. Do you know that the temple of Herod, even though it had a holy of holies, never contained the presence of God? It never saw the Ark of the Covenant because it never came back from, from exile. It was melted down or whatever in Babylon. Now think about this prophetic picture. Who was walking in the streets all around Herod's temple? The very holy of holies himself the Ark of the Covenant himself. Think about how amazing that is. God knew exactly when Jesus was going to come, yeah. and nothing contradicted. There couldn't be two Arks of the Covenant. <laughs> In any case, the point of Jesus was to reveal all that symbolism, all that prophetic picture. This is how it manifests. And so the Lord they were waiting for came to indwell his temple, this temple, the living temple of the hearts of his people. You are now the Ark of the Covenant. You have Jesus inside of you. We sang that earlier, Musso, the kingdom of God is in our hearts. That's not weird New Age stuff. That's what Jesus said. He says, find the kingdom inside yourself, not because you have any power or you have any spiritual authority, but because that's where he lives. That's where it manifests. And so from Moses to the prophets, Jesus is revealed. 
In another place, in John 5, verse 39, Jesus is rebuking the Jews, the religious people, the religious leaders, and he says this to them, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. And you've heard me say this, and you will hear me say it for the rest of my life. Why do we read our Bibles? First and foremost, for fellowship. Jesus is on every single page of the Bible. I read my Bible to encounter Jesus. Why is he rebuking the Jews? Because he said to them, you have scoured the Pentateuch. You have scoured the prophets. You have come up with 613 rules that you figure if you just abide by every one of those, you've got God nailed. You stopped looking for fellowship. You started looking for laws and for morality. And the motivation of that is simply this. What is the least we have to do to please God and not get into trouble? That's what their heart was. When the fulfillment of the promise that they had been reading about in all of those scriptures stood in front of them on the stairs, because that's where he's standing, the stairs of their own temple, they cannot recognize him. What have they been busy with? When the promise you have read about your entire life manifests and you can't see it, what is left to be done? And the mistake they made is is that they thought if they could understand the scriptures, if they could nail the secret wisdom of God, then they wouldn't have to worry anymore. And they thought that was the point of life. They forgot relationships. They forgot that God wants to love them. We're going to talk about that a lot tonight. They were just after laws and rules. The Bible is not a book of laws. It contains law. The Bible is not a book of rules. It contains rules. The Bible is not a manual on morality, even though it does define morality. So what is it? The Bible is a love letter. The Bible is a romance novel. The Bible is a manual on how to know God and be known by Him and how to live in love and peace and harmony with people around you. It's all about love. It is all about relationship. And like the Jews, we just want to figure out the minimal thing that we need to do to get to heaven. We want to be moralistic. God is not moralistic. Perfection is impossible for human beings. How can we then be morally right? The reality of sin is this. Either we are completely self-righteous or completely depraved. The reality is we're in a combination of that. We're in a sliding scale of that. But without Jesus Christ, there is nothing but sin. Because he is perfect. And when we look back to last weekend, that is God's standard of perfection. Not you and I being our best selves. Not you and I figuring out every law, every rule, every bit of morality, and then sticking to it like our lives depend on it. If you are not hidden in Christ, you will never be perfect. Perfection is not the point of Christianity. Relationship is. Relationship in faith is. Accessing God and knowing Him is the point of Christianity. 
From Moses to the prophets, through the gospels, through the epistles, through the book of Revelation, there is one story and one hero and one point to know God and be known by him, to understand his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace. That is why we read our Bibles. And so we enter the word of God for fellowship and we find him, we seek him. So one story One hero. And the hero of the story is the lover of our souls. The hero of our story loved us so much that he gave his life. That he went to hell. Do you know that Jesus went to hell? Because that's where sin goes. He left it all behind. And he rose again. And so tonight... We're looking at the story of the Bible, and it consists of a few main sections. And though some of those sections are creation, fall, Israel, redemption, new creation. We're going to look at all of those through the course of the series. But tonight, we're focusing on creation. We get to do the beginning, right at the beginning. And this is amazing. I love Genesis. Have, if you have not yet read through the entire book of Genesis, do yourself a favor. If you like soap operas at Telemundo level of drama and intrigue, you will adore Genesis. And there is something about the way the book of Genesis is written, because no matter what version of it you read, it is beautiful. It flows. It moves along at a pace. The people are crazy and wonderful and amazing, and it's just incredible. So do yourself a favor and read through that book. And so what we're going to look at is these three things in, in Genesis. You can go back to that as before we go there. Author, act, and apex. The author of creation, the act of creation, and the apex of creation. And before we get to the next slide, um, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. You can follow with me if you want to. It says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And so in English... There are four words that start off the book of Revelation. If you're interested in Hebrew, there's seven. <laughs> and they're a beautiful word play. Um, so much poetry. I think that's why Genesis just translates so well. But such important words. If you are ever confused about your, your identity, your purpose, if you are ever confused about why you are on this planet and why you are here, I, I have been confused. Even recently, I have been confused. What I mean is, I've had an existential crisis. We were talking about that the other day, weren't we, Lorica? Right here, yeah, this place. And I was saying, theoretically, for Christians, it should be impossible to have a theory, to have an existential crisis. But I kind of feel like if you never have an existential crisis as a Christian, you're most probably not pushing in in faith, because we serve a mystery. We serve a mystery. Can a man know God? The answer is yes. Can a man understand God? The answer is yes. However, he is so much bigger and greater than we will ever be. We embrace a mystery. 
And that means that sometimes we're going to have existential crises. Because God doesn't have to answer us, and God doesn't have to tell us why, and God doesn't have to tell us every last detail. He's God. He knows. We don't have to. That's the point of faith. Can you see where I'm going with why Jesus was angry with the Jews? I want to just explain God so I can put him in a box and make him do what I want him to do. That's not our God. I love that song. And um, we were singing about he rides on the storm. I caught a glimpse of what that might look like. It kind of undid me a bit. A God that rides a storm. How do you ride a horse? You've got to bridle it and harness it. Well, that's what God does to storms. Are you facing some storms tonight? Are there some storms in your life? Well, God's riding it. And then we're saying he cannot be tamed. Think about a God who rides a storm. That storm that isn't in control. That storm can't just go left or right as it wants to. He's the one riding it. And that comes out of the scriptures. The winds are his messengers. He rides the storm. But when I get confused, when I have an existential crisis, this is where I come. Because this is now my origin story. This is your origin story. Remember Peter Parker and the spider and Uncle Ben and Aunt May and all the aunts? Well, this is our origin story. We have an origin story. And this is what is very interesting because all of us have the same origin story. We all have our own experience and our own life experience, and that's valuable and that's valid. And we should be sharing that with each other so we can understand each other more. But as the people of God, we have one origin story. This is it. And the first four words are, in the beginning, God. These are the words that literally introduce the history of the universe. <laughs> they actually lay the entire foundation for how we should see the world, for how we should understand what it means to inhabit this earth, to be human. They are essential for our understanding of what the world is, who you are in the world, and who God is in relationship to us and his creation. In the beginning, God. Nothing else. No one else. God. The self-sustaining, pre-existing, self-existing God. See, God, God's story doesn't start here. <laughs> we don't know where God's story started. He's been God forever up until this point. He completely predates the story. He doesn't even enter the story here because it's his story. History. <laughs> so Genesis is literally the beginning of everything except God. He never started. He has always been. And he always is and always will be. He is from everlasting to everlasting. That's what it means. It's not a pretty poetic saying. It is the truth about God. And he is the definition of eternity. Every human being will live forever, regardless of what they believe or whether they're with God or not. That's the state of the human race. But all of us have a beginning. 
So we are finite. We go on into eternity forever, but we have not been for eternity forever. And this is so important because this is the one who creates. And God doesn't create because he's lonely or he's bored or he's needy. I loved what Lareko said. We don't worship God because he wants us to. We worship him because when we look at him, there's no other response. What do you do when you look at the everlasting from everlasting? What do you do when you look at the most gracious, most loving, most amazing, powerful thing that has ever existed? What do you do? You fall on your knees and you tell him he's awesome. He doesn't want that. That's what happened when he created us. Do you understand? And I love what Lyrica said because I agree wholeheartedly. We worship God to remind ourselves who he is. We worship God to remember this is the creator. And we've got a choice in this life. We can either be the ones created in his image or we can try and create him in ours. <laughs> One is way more exhausting than the other. One is way more fraught with despair and nightmare than the other. <laughs> That's the choice we're going to make. And so this God, this is the creator God. And what I love when I was thinking about this, it just absolutely overawed me. Because in the book of Revelation, there's a really interesting scripture, and it says this, Jesus Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And when I was thinking about stories, I was like, oh my word, this story was completed before it even began. What does it mean? Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Well, I have this image in my head. I have God coming to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They're existing together in this beautiful harmony. And I, and I mean, I'm just talking from human space. But God goes, you know what? I've got this idea. And the other two are, oh, it's brilliant. We love it. And God goes, but there's going to be a problem. And Jesus is like, hold on, I've got that sorted. I've already got it sorted. I'll do it. Let's do it now. What am I saying? Well, God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin. And let's be honest, if it wasn't Adam and Eve, it would have been one of us who ate the fruit. So let's cut them a break. They do what people do. They get discontent with God and themselves and they try and fix it and it turns into a nightmare. That's any problem any of us are experiencing must probably starts there. Whether it's us or somebody before us or somebody around us, that's where it starts. So let's give Adam and Eve a break. But because of that, Jesus already put up his hand and said, I'll do it. I'm fully in. We're going to do this thing. And so before, God, before we even know that there is a God, the story was finished. The plan was in place. Before man was even created, redemption existed. Because God doesn't do plan Bs. When you're the creator of the universe, you know what you're about. And you just get on with it. And you don't let silly humans <laughs> mess it up. There are no plan Bs. There's God. In the beginning, God. Simple as that. And of course, God is the Trinity. And so we see something interesting in the scriptures. We see in Genesis 1 uh, verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And who was hovering? Who was hovering? You know the answer. The Holy Spirit. Brooding, hovering, the energy himself. <laughs> 
that was getting ready and creating the atmosphere so that when the Father God spoke, creation would happen. But who else was there? Well, John 1 verse 1 to 3 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. The Word of God. How did God create the universe? One action. He spoke. Who was there with God and the Holy Spirit? Jesus. Yeah. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus were all present and active in creation from the beginning. The second aspect is the is the act of creation that reveals the power of God. So the author of creation reveals the person of creation, this awesome God. The act of creation reveals the power. You can go to the next slide. This is just interesting. That if you have questions about atheism, polytheism, animism, materialism, well, Genesis 1 answers all of those questions. In the beginning, God. And so the act of creation in Genesis 1, 6 to 25, we see that God completes creation. Light was created on day one. Sky was created. Look at this artwork. You'll see it reflected there. On day two, sky was created. Sky and water were separated. On day three, dry land, seas, plants, and trees were created. On day four, sun, moon, and stars are created. Day five, all the creatures in the sea and in the sky are created. And day six, all the creatures on the earth and mankind are created. And then on the seventh day, God finished his work and rested. And if you look these days, science is in agreement for life to exist. This is the order it has to happen in. You couldn't have plants before you had light. <laughs> couldn't have fish before the sea. <laughs> Couldn't have mankind before land. I'm being silly, but if you look at the science of this, it makes sense. It works. Genesis 2 verse 1 to 3 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested. On the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And what a beautiful picture. God is busy for six days, and then he takes a whole day to just marvel. Him and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are just like, look at what we did. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. But then he rests. And when a deity rests, this is in the ancient world, whenever they consecrated a temple to a god, he would come in. He would be the last thing to come in. And they would put the idol, the statue there, you know. But what this is representing is this picture of God. That on the seventh day, God rested in creation. The universe is God's cosmic home. <laughs> and his presence inhabits creation. 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Psalms 22 verse 3 tells us that God inhabits the praises of his people. Nothing else is inhabited by God. His presence is everywhere. He's omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, everywhere. There's not a space that's hidden from him. Some of the Psalms talk about if I go down to the pit of hell, there you are. If I go to the very highest heavens, there you are. No matter where I go, I'll find you. Because he has access to everything. He made it. But the thing he indwells is the hearts of mankind. And so that, that makes something special happen. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a moment. And so we see the universe moving from formlessness to form, and then from chaos and emptiness to fullness, and not just the fullness of things, but the fullness of God himself. Not just trees and birds and plants and awesomeness, but the fullness of himself. You know, if, you've, if you're interested in, in, in the apologetics of um, Darwinism and evolution and all of that, there's one thing that always strikes me in the stuff I've read, is that even Darwin and all the people who, who study this cannot understand the beauty. There's no purpose to the beauty. I believe that the beauty exists because there was a God who looked at it. A beautiful God created beauty. And beauty isn't, fun isn't functional. <laughs> It's not needed to make things work. And that's the essence of evolution, is that the simplest things, you know, figure it out the simplest way and make it work. But beauty exists. And I think God created it as treasure for us. Because there are people on this planet who think spiders are beautiful and snakes are beautiful. I'm not one of them. But there are people who marvel and see God's beauty in that. I remember my nieces here, I remember when she was about five years old, um, the snake park brought like a little uh, truck to a mall close to us, and we went to look at the snakes. And there was this beautiful snake. It was white, and then it had red and black and gold scales in the most beautiful patterns. But literally 10 minutes in, we were looking at the snake, and I looked at her, and she looked at me, and both of us were like, uh-uh, we're done. And we just carried on with our day. But there are people who love that stuff because God made it for them. There are people who love stuff that you hate. God made it for them, and he made the stuff you love for you. And so the... The real issue of the story of creation is this, that every day, at the end of the day, there was morning and there was evening, and God said what? It is good. It is good. It is good. And so the real issue of creation is that it reminds us of the goodness of God. What are you facing in your life today that is chaotic, that is without form? What are you facing in your life today that is hideous and ugly and unbeautiful and unlovely? God is good. God is good. Two weeks ago, we celebrated his goodness, didn't we? We said, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Let's say that together. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. One more time. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. When you see the sunrise tomorrow, if you see the moon on your way home tonight, think of the goodness of God. Whatever is visiting your life, God is good. God is better than that thing. God is stronger than that thing, and he is with you. 
And so the issue of this is that we are the apex of creation. It sounds awful to say that. In, in the world we live in today, to give ourselves that honor, we'll be canceled. We'll be shut up. But we cannot hide from this fact. Why are we the apex of creation? Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Birds can be beautiful and amazing. They fly. We don't fly. Imagine how... Much easier our lives would be if we could fly. We could say to Putin, take your oil. We don't care. <laughs> They're better than us in that way. Absolutely. Their lives are better. Flowers are beautiful. So much beautiful and wonder on the earth. But not one of them is created in the image of God. There is only one thing that bears the image of God, the Imago Dei. And that is you and I. And so we do not put ourselves at the top of creation. God chooses to do that. And so what is the Imago Dei? It's a place for God to rest. And we watch God and Adam in the garden. They relate. They talk to each other. They have conversations. God loves Adam. And Adam thinks God's amazing. <laughs> and they do things together and they hang out. And then God gives Adam responsibility. How did God create again? Not a trick question. He said things. He said words. So let's think about every animal that's been created. God must have had a name for it. Think about that for a minute. How did a giraffe come to be? Because God said, let there be a giraffe. Because I think he had a way better name for it. But God does this amazing thing, and this is what he does with his creature that he's created, that he loves, that he's put his own image on. He says, okay, Adam, and this is my interpretation. I've named all the animals. But why don't you go out and look at them? And you name them. And whatever you name them, that's what they'll be named. What is God doing? Partnership. He's, given, he's giving Adam. He says have dominion. Then he gives him authority to go and do it. And whatever God called the hippopotamus before it got called the hippopotamus, he no longer calls it that. It's called what it's called, a hippopotamus. Dear Adam, what were you thinking? Obviously, he didn't give it that name. Do you get where I'm going with this? And that's what's happening with you and I today, is we get to partner with God. This is, again, why Jesus is so angry with the Jews. Why are you content just to do the minimal work to get into heaven when you can know me? This is the issue of purpose. What are you partnering with with God? He's the greater partner. He's the one who calls us into partnership. Adam never existed. God has a completely clean palate. He can do anything he wants. He could have made mermaids with octopus tentacles to serve him. <laughs> he made people. God made humans because he wants humans. Think about that for a minute. And everything we do is to dehumanize ourselves, whether it's sin or self-righteousness. God's not interested in that. He wants you and he wants me. And he wants us to partner with him. He invites us in. And this is the issue of purpose. You have gifts. You have talents. You have causes that you are passionate about. Well, God's got a plan. You need to name some animals. 
But you've got to come out of religiosity into relationship. You've got to come out of hiding into being seen. You've got to come out from the bush with your fig leaves and strip yourself naked before God and let him show you who he is and who you really are. This is the issue of him creating mankind. We are made in the image of God. The imago Dei lives in us. And now some of you are going, but what about sin? Well, this is the fascinating thing. There isn't a single scripture that says the imago Dei leaves us, ever. It does talk about sin marring us. What is marring? To make it dull. To make it a little hidden. But there is not a person on this planet, no matter how sinful they are, no matter what decisions they are making for their life, that is not made in the image of God. And let's think of the implications of that. You are made in the image of God. You have the Imago Dei on your heart, on your soul. It is stamped on you. What does that mean for you today? You think about that before the Lord. How are you dealing with your life? How are you dealing with your purpose? Do you believe that you're worthless and nothing? Do you believe that you're called and loved and wanted and cherished? Do you believe your name is written on, his, on the palm of his hand? The word of God tells us that. See, some of you don't know that because you never read that scripture. You go find it and you read it. It will encourage you. But we can't choose who we are in this world. We can't decide what we want to be. We can call ourselves a worm because other people did, but what is God saying? And if we call ourselves Christians even more so because he should have the greatest influence on our lives. But now let's take it a bit further. Every single person you meet has the Imago Dei. Ooh, that one's tough for me, especially when we're driving in Joburg. <laughs> but they really do. So that's the next implication. I can't just treat other people the way I want to. Because I'm responsible before God with that. And that's hard. All of us have failed in that area. I have, definitely. But we have the image of God on us. We are the apex of his creation. And so through both learning about the author, we've got to think about the author of creation. Who is God? God wants you to think about him. God thinks about you. God's got thoughts about you. He's got plans in his heart for you. Do you think about him? Are you really thinking about who he is and what that then means? That he is creator God, in the beginning God? The act of creation shows us his goodness, proves to us that he's a beautiful, wonderful God. God is not boring. Somebody who invented fire is somebody you want to get to know. And whether you like spiders or not, that's also incredible that he puts stuff here for everybody to enjoy. God is good. That's the kind of God. God is not some monster trying to puppeteer us. That is religious nonsense. God wants us. And then lastly, we are the apex of creation. We are the stewards of the earth. And we're going to have to answer to God for some stuff. But let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, the greatest story. <laughs> one story, one hero. Lyrico's going to close for us. <laughs>